Well, good morning, guys. That was a sweet time of worship. Uh, this morning, I have the privilege and the opportunity to introduce y'all somebody who I can honestly call a friend and a brother um, at this point. But before I do that, I'd like to take some time and just kind of walk us through the last few months and really give God praise and thanks for how good and how faithful he's been to us. About 10 months ago, Life Church entered a new season, and uh, honestly, guys, we weren't happy about it, and we weren't ready. After six years of faithful service to the church, uh, Chris Selton resigned, and we were stunned. Well, moving forward, we, we moved forward with the process of hiring Matt Perez as our pastor of care and equipping, and praise God for the blessing that he has been to our congregation in so many ways. We realized after that we needed to put the pieces together and, and that we still needed a pastor that would lead and shepherd our congregation in new ways unique to Matt's position. So we put together a search team, and in February they went to work. Side note, I want to I thank you all for your continued and faithful prayers for the leadership of the church and, and for the search team. Those prayers were desperately needed, and guys, they were felt. Also... I would be remiss not to mention the incredible job that the pastor search team did. So thank you to George Pless, Chris Gratton, uh, Julie Slack, Lynn Smith, Blake Crabb, and Jeannie McDowell. I hope I, uh, hope I met, got them all. Yeah, give those guys a hand. So, so here we are after looking at resume after resume after resume and conducting interview after interview, we have come to this place with James Sharp. And we believe that God is orchestrating something special here. And we believe that, that James may be our next pastor of care, or I'm sorry, of teaching and vision. And um, we have been and will continue to be committed to bathe this process in prayer. And guys, we ask that you would continue to do the same with us, that you would partner with us, not only for Life Church, for direction and wisdom, but also for James and his family as well. In the next couple weeks, we will look for your affirmations and questions. Go ahead and send those to uh, the elders' email address that you'll find on our website or in the letter that Brittany sent out. So, so here we are with James. Now, James is a pastor with an incredible teaching and shepherding ability, and this was just felt minutes into our conversations with him. Um, and, and a side note here that, that James has, was one of, if not the first applicants for this position, so he's really been walking with us through this since the beginning. So James and his wife, Kristen, are here with us this morning. And would you give Pastor James a warm welcome? Well, thanks, Matt. I'm surely not worthy of some of those words of affirmation, but church, I want you to know that I am just so delighted to be with you. Um, we are here to be in the Word today. I hope you have a Bible with you or a way to put the Bible in front of your face on your device. We're going to be, there's a step there. Some of y'all just saw that. I'm new here. I'm not sure I knew there was a step there, but I know now. First Thessalonians, that's, that's how I wanted this to start. Like, when I was dreaming about this day, I thought, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth, like, within the first 30 seconds. First Thessalonians 2, that's where we are going to be this morning. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just share a little bit about my perspective on the process that you have walked through as a church. 
Um, it was, I think, right at six months ago that Life Church in Salisbury, North Carolina, came onto my radar for the first time. And um, I even looked this week to confirm for sure. My first email conversation with Lynn Smith happened on April 28th of this year. Um, but that means that for, for many months, um, I've been praying for you. And Kristen, my wife, has been praying for you. And at first, those prayers were really focused on your pastoral search team and your staff and your elders as they worked together to discern who the Lord was calling to lead here. Because I'll be very frank, church, I didn't want to be here if that guy wasn't me, right? And so I wanted them to make a wise and good decision. And I've prayed for them. We've prayed for them. And then as those conversations move forward, we have prayed for you and your church as you walk through this transition together. Um, and I'll say to be here at the end of that process is really a humbling thing for me and a joy for me. I'm so glad that we can be together this morning and be in God's word this morning. I also thought it would be maybe wise uh, to speak just briefly to the temptation that all of us will experience this morning as we spend the next 40 minutes or so in the word of God. I understand the position that you are in, and you probably understand the position that I am in, and it will be understandable, yet tempting today for us to focus an extraordinary portion of our minds and our hearts on the messenger this morning, rather than the message we hear from the Lord. And that's not necessarily bad, right? It's not unwise for you to think a little bit about my ability to handle the Word of God, my ability to understand what Scripture says and then communicate that to you. It's not unnecessarily wise for you to be caught up just a little bit in how the Lord has gifted me and to be assessing those things and thinking of those things. In fact, it's wise for you to guard the gospel that the Lord has entrusted to you by ensuring as a church that that gospel will be rightly proclaimed and that God's Word will be faithfully handled from your pulpit. Yet at the end of the day, and, and you know, by the way, you can also see from my perspective how there might be a little bit of pressure to come across as impressive. Almost stepping off the stage really helped in that regard, I know. <laughs> but you can see how there would be just maybe a little bit of pressure for me this morning to perform for you in a way that I might impress you with my wit or my intellect or my gift. But at the end of the day, we know, church, that what matters most in this space, in this moment, is not the messenger, but the message. At my best, I am a man with the word of God in my hands, and this is the most important part of that equation, right? It's not me. And so I just want to pray this morning as we gather that we would be a people who are ready to hear from the word, that the Spirit of God would give us hearts that are soft to his word so that we can hear together from him with eyes that are open and ears that are open, that his word might bear much fruit in us as we gather. And so let me read this morning our passage from 1 Thessalonians, and then I'll pray that the Lord would do a work in us today. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, 
But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Church, let's pray together. Father, in your word, you promise that you never waste your words. You promise that your spirit makes effective the proclamation of your truth in a way that it always bears fruit in us, the fruit that you have purposed for it to bear. And so we gather today with with great confidence in the way that you can and will do a work in us as together we sit under your word. So Father, give us eyes that are open and ears that are open, hearts that are soft to the seed of the word that you would plant in each of us this morning. And we pray that that seed would grow and bear much fruit of righteousness in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a very common fear that all of us have, one that is lurking in the backs of our minds and that is just kind of like this this nagging doubt that seems to never go away sometimes, is the fear that our labor in life will be worthless. It's the fear that everything we've invested in and everything we've sought to accomplish will ultimately, in the end, prove to be in vain. We fear that all of our blood and sweat and tears in life will one day, when it matters most, amount to nothing. And so certainly you can, you can have that fear when it comes to your vocation, the work that you do. Right? I'm sure there are some of us in this room who will work in the same job for 30 years, 35 years, 40 years, and at the end of that long season of labor, our company will throw a, you know, a small retirement party for us. Maybe they'll give us a nice parting gift, a gold watch or something like that. And on the last day of our work, we will carry out in this small cardboard box all of our personal effects. And then that company that we worked for for all of those years We'll hire some 25-year-old recent college graduate to do our job. And we'll wonder, was it worth it? Was it in vain? Certainly, we'll experience the same kinds of questions and doubts when it comes to parenting our children, right? 
parents, we invest so much of our lives in our children. We teach them to walk. We teach them to ride a bicycle. Eventually, we teach them to drive. And then there's the moment, maybe when they turn 18, maybe later, when we send them off into the world, right? And we pray for that moment when we launch them into the world, having trained them according to our values, having raised them up to know and love the Lord that we know and love And then they go off on their own and they're independent and they don't rely on you for counsel or wisdom anymore. And you just wonder, was my work enough? Did I do it? Was it enough? Or was it in vain? And then even in ministry, we can have that same kind of persistent nagging doubt. Certainly this is true uh, for elders and pastors and, and people who invest a lot of their lives in the ministry of a local church. But it's true for all of us because, indeed, God calls all of us to ministry. He calls each and every believer in his son Jesus to be a priest of the kingdom of his son. And so every one of us in the room has a ministry that the Lord has entrusted to us. And we labor at that ministry. Maybe it's just in our family. Maybe it's in our neighborhood, the life group that we're pouring into, the church that we're a part of. Or like Matt Perez these weeks, a ministry to the ends of the earth. But we invest in that ministry And you know, the work of sanctification in people's lives is slow. You cannot microwave mature Christians. You cook them in a slow cooker, and it takes a long time. And a lot of times when you look at that slow cooker, you're not sure it's doing anything. But the work of sanctification is slow. Progress is measured in millimeters. And sometimes we look at that and we wonder, is is what I'm doing making any difference at all? Is it worth it? Or was that work in vain? And I think the greatest comfort that I can take as I think about those questions today is the fact that clearly the Apostle Paul wrestled with those very same questions. Right As we begin our passage this morning, he says, in in verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But my point to you first today is that Paul would never make that statement if he hadn't at least wondered. Right? If he hadn't at least wondered in his heart of hearts, is that works that I did among the Thessalonians, was it going to amount to anything? But as he considers that today, he gives us a portrait of faithful ministry, of the kind of ministry that is not in vain. He describes to the Thessalonians exactly why the work that he did among them, though it was very brief, we know from the book of Acts, he describes to them why the work that he did among them was faithful and fruitful and not in vain. And I'll show you today that the way that Paul has written this passage, he gives us really three illustrations of the kind of faithful ministry that is never futile. He gives us an illustration in verses 2 through 5 of a faithful steward. He gives us an illustration in verses 6 through 8 of a nurturing, affectionate mother. And he gives us an illustration in verses 9 through 12 of a kind, wise hardworking, and encouraging father. And so you can think through this passage in those three pieces today. Let's look at each of them just one at a time. First, a careful steward. So Paul says, verse 1, we know that our work was not in vain. And then in verse 2, he begins to explain why that's true. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so what Paul's saying there is that we, we came to the Thessalonians from Philippi, and Philippi did not go well. 
right? It was, it was a tough time of ministry for Paul and Silas. They were accused wrongfully by the magistrate or before the magistrate because of their gospel ministry. As a part of that accusation, they were stripped and beaten and thrown in prison. When finally the magistrate realized that these were Roman citizens and he legally couldn't do that to them, he just had them run out of town, basically. And so Paul and, Philippi came, or Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica from Philippi, and, and they were beaten down, right? But that didn't discourage them. They didn't give up and go home, even though it seemed like maybe the work that they were doing was futile and in vain. No, they started doing faithful work among the Thessalonians, only for almost the same thing to happen again. We know in Acts chapter 17 that a large crowd gathers around the house where they're staying and that the Christians in Thessalonica become so concerned for Paul and Silas' safety that they quickly send them on their way to Berea. They, they were probably only in Thessalonica for a matter of weeks. And Paul's looking back on the church that he began there, the church that the Lord began there. And he's wondering, was this worth it? Was this in vain? Even though we came in the midst of much conflict and, and left in the midst of much conflict? And his answer is no, because of what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And listen to this. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And what I want you to hear there, church, is the language of stewardship. Paul says, as faithful stewards, God approved of us and entrusted the precious gospel of Jesus Christ with us. And Paul's logic is God would never do that if our ministry was going to be in vain. He would never trust something so priceless to us if that was ultimately going to be in vain. Kristen and I, we have um, four young-ish children at home. Our oldest is 13, and our youngest is 6. And when we came to Salisbury this weekend, we left them with my mother um, in our home in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so um, at this point in our life, uh, we are pretty willing to entrust our children to just about anyone. I'll be honest, right? Like if you, <laughs> if you know their names and have the margin in your life to do it, I'm willing to give it a try for anywhere between two hours and two months, right? You can have them, and we'll just see how it goes. They're a little more independent now, and I worry a little bit less about their, their fragile emotional states. However, a few years ago, that certainly would not have been the case. When my kids were younger and more dependent, especially when my youngest son, Carson, was a toddler, um, we, we were pretty strict about who we entrusted our children to. And if you did happen to pass my wife's very stringent exam and receive the care of our children as a gift, um, anytime she entrusted our kids to you, um, it came along with these very copious and detailed instructions about how to care for our children. It would be pages and pages of handwritten notes. Um, I'm serious when I say pages and pages. There have been PhD dissertations that were shorter, I am sure. Um, but pages and pages of notes that she would handwrite each and every time we were about to leave our kids with somebody. She would detail the kids' nutritional needs and their schedules. She would make sure that you had an understanding of who the kids' favorite stuffed animals were and even their like, origin stories in case you needed to create some kind of bedtime tale involving the stuffed animal. I mean, she would just go to great lengths to make sure that you were equipped to handle the care of our children before she would entrust them to you. And of course that makes sense. 
right, the more priceless or precious an object is, the more care we exercise in entrusting it to someone. You likely wouldn't trust your brand new Camaro to a 16-year-old with a brand new driver's license. If you have a pair of like family heirloom earrings that have been handed down through the generations, I'm guessing your daughter is not wearing those earrings on the first day of kindergarten. And when you have a new baby, you don't just hand that baby over to anyone. You are careful in whom you entrust that child to. Because the more precious and priceless an object is, the more care we must exercise in entrusting it to someone. Well, church, there isn't anything more precious than the gospel. Right? The good news that though we were rebellious against God in our sin, he has entered into our world, sending his one and only son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death in our place, to rise again three days later, having endured the full wrath of God as penalty for our sin, and to ascend to the highest place in heaven where he now intercedes on our behalf. There is nothing more precious than that news. And as a church, Life Church, you have nothing better than that, right? We can walk these halls, we can see a thriving children's ministry over here in Life Kids. And we can celebrate the fact that children's lives are being changed there, and that is a precious thing. We can talk about all of your life groups and the tremendous energy that's happening out of those life groups, the way people's lives are being transformed, and the way that you are serving your community and your county through those groups. We can celebrate all of those things. We can celebrate your gifts staff and committed elders and celebrate the fact that God has blessed you as a church with incredibly rich resources. But church, I tell you, none of those things approach the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the most precious thing that you have to steward as a church. It is priceless. And Paul's point is that God doesn't entrust that to just anybody. He entrusts that to those of whom he approves. He says in verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And so Paul is sure that his work in Thessalonica was not in vain. Because what did he do? He took that priceless treasure and he spoke it. He proclaimed it. He pressed the gospel into people's lives. He did not hold back. And I want you to notice especially that he says he preached it not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, if you're with us today and you aren't a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm really glad that you're here. Thanks for being with us. I'm, for whatever reason you are here, it is to me great that you are with us. But if you're with us and you're not a Christian today, I must be honest and say that that phrase right there really ought to be terrifying to you. Because Paul is reminding us that God, in the end, tests not our actions, not our intentions, but our hearts. He sees into our very souls and, and who we are and what we do and why we do what we do. And there will be a day when the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, returns to judge the living and the dead. And because God tests our hearts... Jesus on that day will not grade on a curve. Right? He will see into the very recesses of your heart and mine, and he will hold us accountable for not just the things that we've done, but the things we haven't done. 
Not the things that we've said, but the things that we haven't said. The things that we've done or said out of the wrong reasons rather than the right reasons. The things that we've wanted to say, the things that we've longed for, all of our prideful thoughts, all of our greedy thoughts, all of our lustful thoughts. He will hold us to account for every single nook and cranny of our souls. And if you sit in this room and you are not in Christ, then I pray that that reality makes you tremble. But if you sit in this room and you are in Christ, if you sit in this room and you have repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord in faith, then I pray that that reality gives you humble but profound confidence today. Because I want you to see why Paul makes a point of saying that. He's saying to the Thessalonians, we were entrusted with the gospel and we spoke it to you. And we spoke it in such a way that we were free to do because God tests our hearts, but he's approved of us in Christ. See, if you're a Christian, then when God looks at your heart, he does not see your heart. He sees the heart of Jesus credited to your heart. He doesn't see your life. He sees the perfect life of Jesus credited to you. See, Jesus didn't come to earth and die on the cross merely to pay the penalty of our sins, friend. He came to die on the cross and live a perfect life so that he could credit to us that perfect life. So that when God the Father sees us, when God the Son returns to judge us, we will be robed in Christ's righteousness and merit so that we need not fear that day. So that we need not fear the judgment of the Lord that will come on that day. And if we need not fear the judgment of the Lord that will come on that day, then we need not fear the judgment of man that might come today. We can be free to be entrusted with the gospel and to preach that gospel, knowing that no matter what man might think of us, the holy, righteous judge of the universe delights in us. Ministry born out of that will never be in vain. It will never be wasted. I need to move on. The second illustration that Paul gives us is the illustration of an affectionate mother. Let's pick up the text in verse 5. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And friends, I just want you to notice that, that Paul is emphasizing the fact that he didn't come to Thessalonica to get anything. He came simply to give. Right? He came to, to serve them, to give. And so he didn't want anything from the Thessalonians. He wanted something for them. He didn't come with manipulation through flattering words to get the people to do what he wanted. He didn't come with a pretext for greed, hoping that he would get rich quick off of the Thessalonians. And he didn't come with any desire for personal glory or recognition. Instead, verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then I think... Verse 8 might be the most incredible sentence in this book. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And so in other words, we didn't come to you to get anything from you. We came to give to you. But we gave you not just the gospel message, 
but we gave ourselves as messengers. We came to you not just to give you gospel words, but to give you our very lives. We came not just to share gospel doctrine, but to share our very hearts with you. And Paul's confident that his ministry in Thessalonica was not in vain, because when he did that ministry, he gave himself as a part of that ministry. He didn't just show up and preach in the synagogues and then hang out by himself at the coffee shop for the rest of the week. No, he was with the people. He invested in the people. He enmeshed his life in their lives. He served them and loved them and was present with them. He poured himself out for the people he ministered to. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you that relationships in our culture typically don't look like that. In our culture, typically the way that we view and understand relationships is like we're using those relationships in order to get something rather than to give something. You can tell that's true by the way people talk whenever a relationship ends. I mean, even just think about the really sad and tragic cases of divorce that we all know of in our lives. When someone's walked through divorce, often the language they use sounds, you know, just a little bit like this. They'll say, yeah, he just wasn't meeting my needs anymore. I needed to find somebody who could meet my needs. And people will even talk that way about churches after they leave churches. They'll say things like, I just wasn't being fed there anymore. I need to find a place where I can be fed. And don't mishear me. I do think that in a healthy marriage, both husband and wife's needs are being met. And I do think in a healthy relationship with the church, you are being fed. Your soul is being nourished through the teaching of the word of God. But we are worldly and not wise if we think that our relationships exist solely for the purpose of having our needs met. If we only look to those relationships to get rather than to think about what we should give. Paul, in contrast, says that when he was with the Thessalonians, he was like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now think about that for a minute. Like really, truly, what does an infant baby offer to his or her mother as that mother cares for him through the night? I mean, what does the baby have to give to his mother as she endures sleepless nights and endless disruption, disruptions of her schedule as time and time again she's frazzled, you know, beyond wit's end as she tries to care for that infant? Practically speaking, that infant has nothing to give to his mother or hers. That infant's attitude is take, take, take. But that mother's attitude is give, give, give. And Paul is sure that his relationship in Thessalonica was not in vain. Because when he came there and he preached the gospel, all he did was give, give, give. Friends, if you want the power of the gospel to resound in your lives, I would just encourage you this morning to evaluate all of your relationships based on what you can give to the people in your life rather than on what you expect to receive from them. I mean, if you want to transform your marriage, focus entirely on how you can serve your spouse and give of your very self to him or her. 
If you want to change profoundly the nature and the dynamic of your relationship with your children or your parents, focus for a while exclusively on what you can give to them rather than what you can receive from them. And if you're desperate, like I am, to reach my lost neighbors with the good news of Jesus, then just focus for a season on giving of your very self with no strings attached. Serve them. Love them. Expect nothing of them in return, not even a warm reception to your service and love. Focus on giving. Because, friends, we are never more like Jesus than when we serve others unconditionally and in love, giving our very selves. Isn't that what Jesus did? Mark 10.45, Jesus himself said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So it's not that Jesus wanted to get something out of that dynamic. He even gave up what he already had, what he was naturally entitled to as a member of the divine Godhead. He gave that privilege away, that glory away, that status away. Why? So that he could serve. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Acts 20, 35, Paul, he's speaking on a beach in Miletus to the Ephesian elders. He's about to leave them. And he says, In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. These are words that will define your ministry right here. How he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Friends, your ministry will never be in vain if you give of your very self as you give the gospel. The last image, I'll just spend a minute here, is the image of, I think, a hardworking and encouraging father. Read in verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Paul, here he's going out of his way to make the point that when he was in Thessalonica, he did not demand or expect financial compensation in any way from the Thessalonian church because these were brand new Christians. Now, against the backdrop, I do have to say, I'm very thankful for the fact that your elders have made it clear that they intend to compensate me if you call me here. Just in case you were not sure about that. As mature Christians, we understand that it is right and our responsibility to support gospel work. But these new believers, Paul didn't want to impose on them. He didn't want to demand anything from them. And so he took nothing from them while he was there. Verse 10 says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, not all of us have fathers who fit the picture that's described here. The picture here is of a wise, loving, encouraging father. 
And Paul says that wise, loving, encouraging father, he, he serves, he works night and day so as to not demand anything from his children. And then he encourages them. He exhorts them. He charges them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And when we do that, our work is never in vain for the Lord. Friends, I'm struck most by the fact that Paul, when he's trying to measure his ministry in Thessalonica, I'm struck most by the fact that he doesn't point to all the people who were converted. He doesn't point to all the people who showed up on Sunday morning. He doesn't point to the things that we would point to, right? the vibrancy of the church in Thessalonica. He doesn't point to any of that. He says, praise the Lord, I was faithful in the way that I conducted myself among you. And I know that faithful ministry, more than fruitful ministry, faithful ministry is ministry that is never, ever in vain. And so he says, I came to you, and I served you the way a father serves his children. I came to you, and I was like an affectionate mother who gave and gave and gave, and I didn't take, I didn't take, I didn't take. I just wanted to nurture you. And I came to you, and I stewarded rightly and wisely the precious truth of the gospel. And because I did those things, my ministry was never in vain. I want to talk about your ministry, church. I'm sure there are people in this room who think that you have nothing to give. I'm sure that there are people in this room who look at their lives and they look at their gifts and they look at their biblical wisdom and they look at their circumstances and they think, man, I just don't have anything to offer. And I just want to tell you, church, that I stand here before you, I believe firmly on the authority of the word of God, and I say you have so much to give. If you are a Christian today, you are an adopted son or daughter of the king of heaven. If you are a Christian today, the powerful Holy Spirit lives and resides in you. The same Spirit who by his power Jesus was raised from the dead is in you. If you are a Christian today, you have the very words of God in your hand in the Holy Word of God. If you are a Christian today, you have the good news of the gospel, the most precious resource God could ever entrust with us. It is yours. And if you are a Christian today, you have your own life, your very self that you can share with others as you invest in them and serve them. Share the gospel. Share yourself. Be faithful. That is ministry that will never, ever be in vain. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you value faithfulness more than you value fruitfulness. We thank you as we think about the work that you have called us to do, Lord, for the fact that you desire to entrust to us the precious truth of the gospel. And we pray simply, Lord, that you would make us faithful as your people. We pray that you would allow us to rightly steward the truth of the gospel, sharing it, celebrating it, proclaiming it, not in word only, but also with our very lives, that through us and through our church, you might raise up a harvest of righteousness. In Salisbury, in Rowan County, and to the ends of the earth for your glory. We pray all of that in the precious name of Jesus, Father. Amen.